And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So the reading of God's word, let us pray once again. Oh, Father, we pray that now you would bless the reading and preaching of your word, that you would be glorified, that it would take root in our hearts and grow and bear much fruit for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I don't think it would take much convincing for me to say that we live in a world of confusion Our public educational system leads our boys and girls to question whether or not they are indeed boys or girls. We currently have an assistant health secretary who is a man pretending to be a woman. Dr. Seuss is now racist. Mr. Potato Head is sexist. And over the past year, looters have run through the streets stealing high-end goods in the name of justice. And even now, to say that two plus two equals four, according to one Brooklyn College math professor, is racist. And that's because we are told objective truth is a social construct. And as a friend of mine noted, we dare not drive over such bridges who were built by engineers who subscribe to such things. Well, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul summed up what we've seen in our nation over the past year and decades even. In Romans 1, Paul wrote this at verse 21. It says, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That word futile means pointless. Their thoughts became pointless and futile. 
Indeed, we live in a nation of fools. And I will add, it's only by the grace of God that we are not fools here tonight. And as we talk about this confusion in our society, uh, we know who is behind this confusion. It's not God. He's not the author of confusion, right? As Christians, we know exactly who ultimately is behind such confusion. It is Satan himself. In John 44, John 8, 44, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, said this to the unbelievers there. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, and he is a liar and the father of it. So in part, what we are seeing, just in part, is the unraveling of Western culture. A culture that has been built upon the principles of Christianity over the centuries. And I personally believe this is a spiritual attack upon that culture. It's been packaged in different forms, and as of late, that package is cultural Marxism. I'm not, I was tempted to go into all that tonight. I'm not an expert in it, but I've read on it, and I would just encourage you to read a book or two about it. One good resource uh, is the book, By What Standard? I think it was published by some Southern Baptist, Reformed Baptist men. There's a chapter in there by Vody Bauckham. It's very good. But it is an attack on Christian culture, and that's what we are seeing in our time. And I'm not blaming everything that we are seeing on that. At the end of the end of the day, I think what we can say, and one way we can put it is to put it simply, is that what we are seeing is a rejection of God, a rejection of God's word, a rejection of his gospel, a rejection of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I've given thought to this, my question that I keep going back to is how should we as Christians respond? Well, that answer is the same. We respond in the same way as we are commanded in Scripture, the same way that the apostles told the New Testament Christians to respond to their ungodly, dark, foolish culture. In Romans 1, the apostle Paul said in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So we begin by responding with the gospel of God, the the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the priority. And so, Kevin, why then a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, you might be asking? Well, I think because of the confusion out there, we need to get our standards right. We need clarity. And all of this confusion, this moral and ethical confusion that is being cast upon us and that we are seeing and witnessing in our day. In fact, Jesus, in Matthew 22, he was asked, remember, he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And so he responded in verse 37 by saying this, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. And so Jesus there nicely summarizes the Ten Commandments. The first table, we call them, being love to God, and the second being love for neighbor. And so when we're told to love our neighbor this day, that looks kind of weird and comes in many different ways. And so the point is, if we want to love God, if we want to show love to our neighbor, where do we go to find it? The Word of God, and in in particular, to His moral law. His law in action is true love in action. And so what I want to do tonight is just set before us uh, the original context of the moral law here as it is summarized in the Ten Commandments. I want us to consider its context and also just talk briefly about its place in our society today. And so then what was the context of the law. Remember, in chapter 19, there's Moses going up and down the mountain, up and down, up and down, and God gives to Moses the law so he can turn around and give it to Israel. And so what was the point of that law? Was it a system of works so that the Israelites might earn favor and salvation with God? Well, no. In fact, here's what we ought to see. First of all, we ought to see that concerning the Ten Commandments and even the law, the moral law, their original context was the context of grace and redemption. That is, that this Mosaic covenant is a gracious covenant, not a covenant of works. The law of God here as it is given was never intended by God to be a system of works. I want, to, I want to give to you about four or so reasons as to why that is the case. Just think about it with me. First of all, the fall had already occurred. The fall means that uh, we are sinners, Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. And in Ephesians 2, 8, it says, Therefore, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And so God's people since the fall, or I should say no man since the fall has been or ever could be saved by good works. And that includes by keeping the law of God. Second, we ought to note that when God gave this moral law, he also gave the ceremonial law with it, that system of sacrifices. And so when God gave the law, there is this assumption The giving of this law presupposes Israel's sinfulness. The sacrifices were given for when they sinned against God. Now those sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews points out clearly, those sacrifices could never remove their sins. But what those sacrifices represented and pointed to could and would. The coming of the Savior himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a third reason why I think this uh, covenant here, this Mosaic covenant, is a gracious covenant, not of works. And that is because what God is doing here is rooted in his covenant with Abraham. You see, Israel was already in a relationship with God based on Abraham's relationship with God. 
Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 2 because, well, in my opinion, this is glorious to see this. And I think it's helpful when you come to Exodus chapter 20. Remember in in Exodus 2, God's people are found there. They're groaning. They are in much affliction. They had multiplied greatly as God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis and so in Exodus 2, at the end of the chapter, it says there, verse 23, around the second half of that verse, it says, their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Verse 24. So God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with whom? Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. And so God was reminded of the covenant and the promises he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Exodus 3 and verse 6, he tells Moses there at the burning bush, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he tells Moses to go tell Pharaoh to set his people free. And so, even when we look at uh, Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, it says about Israel that they are the children of God, or that Israel, rather, is his son. And so the point is, is that what God is doing here in Exodus 20 is based upon the promises that he made previously to Abraham. And we know that the covenant with Abraham is a gracious covenant. We see that throughout Scripture. You can go later And look at Galatians chapter 3, where it says that God preached the gospel to Abraham. And I'll just read this to you. In Galatians 3.17, Paul says this, The law, which was 430 years later, after God's promise to Abraham, the law cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should be made, or that it should make the promise of no effect. And then there's another reason as to why what is going on here at Sinai in Exodus 20, the giving of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is a gracious situation, a gracious covenant. It is because the Exodus itself was a gracious and mighty act of God whereby His people might live And serve and worship Him. Look at our text. Tonight we're just considering really the first two verses here. uh, The preface of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. There's that covenant name for God. He's already in that relationship with them. I'm the Lord your God who brought you. Out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. They were in servitude. They were slaves to the Egyptians. God delivered them. God rescued them. And he did this through his grace. As he tells Israel a generation or many generations later uh, in, in Deuteronomy. He says there in Deuteronomy 7. Beginning at verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number 
than any other people, for you are the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king in Egypt. And so it's by God's grace, his sovereign and powerful grace, that he delivered the Israelites from Egypt and brings them to Sinai, where, through Moses, he delivers to them this covenant, his law, and here, his moral law. We could talk about this all night, I suppose, uh, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul writing there says that Christ himself is our Passover. So the Jewish Passover is a type of Christ to come. And the Jewish Passover was instituted before Exodus 20. In Exodus 12, there is that type of the Lord Jesus, the Passover lamb, whose blood was to be shed and smeared over the doorpost. And it was through that blood that God spared the firstborn. And it was through that event that God was able to deliver, therefore, his people from Egypt. By the way, if you want to talk about an exodus in Isaiah, there are other passages in the prophets, but in Isaiah 52, it talks about a second exodus to come. That second exodus to come would arrive with the coming, the first coming of Jesus. And so it would be Jesus who would go down into Egypt and, and to lead his people out of the house of bondage. And so then when we think about this historical context in Exodus 20, what was God doing with Israel? Well, one thing we could say is that he was calling a people out unto himself that they might serve and worship him. And he called them out of bondage, out of the house of slavery. And he had done this before with Lot and with Abraham before him. Remember, he called Abraham out of paganism, out of Mesopotamia, in order that he might worship God. And so he does this with the descendants of Abraham. By the way, a guy named Michael Morales, he teaches at a seminary not far from here. Uh, in one of his recent works, he talks about how um, Israel... They were afflicted in Egypt. And he notes that Egypt is a type of Sheol, the place of the dead. The Egyptians, rather, I should say the Israelites, they descend into Egypt. And they are there where they are multiplied. But then God brings them up and delivers them out. And then, Mr. Morales notes this. He says that the Bible in texts such as 1 Peter 3.21... 1 Corinthians 10, 2, you know, 1 Peter 3, 21, it says that we have this antitype that now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth from the flesh. Peter, Peter there is talking about what baptism signifies, not the water itself, but that which it signifies. 1 Corinthians 10, 2 says that our fathers, the Israelites, were baptized into Moses. And so Mr. Morales says those texts... They tell us that Israel's crossing the sea 
was a foreshadowing of what our baptism signifies. A death to the old world and being made alive to the new world. Therefore, when the Israelites crossed the sea, he says, they were leaving the old world and entering the new. Think of it like this. God delivers his people Israel. He brings them eventually to Mount Sinai. He gives them his law. And he is saying this as it is written there in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. I have saved you. Now live this way. That's what he is saying. And so it is for us today. Those whom God saves, whom he delivers out of their Egypt, out of the house of bondage, he tells us now live this way. And so when a person is delivered from slavery and servitude, not only to Satan, John 8, 44, but a life dominated, Romans 6, by sin, he calls us out. He saves us through the blood of the Lamb. He applies that work to us through his gospel, by his spirit, and he begins to clean up our lives and to show us how to live. And his word tells us that, and in particular, his commandments, as they are summarized here in the moral law of God. And so the exodus itself is a type of our salvation. We need to understand that as God's people today. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creature or a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And when you, th- when you think about the fact that as even a New Testament Christian, that the salvation of Israel in this great event signifies our salvation. You can begin to pick up on it in the New Testament. Just give you one place. First Peter. Peter seems to be uh, hinting at it at the very least throughout that letter. In chapter 2, he's contrasting unbelievers with believers, Christians with non-Christians. And he says about the non-Christians, the unbelievers, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But he says to the church there, He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so 1 Peter takes the language that God used concerning Old Testament Israel. He takes that language and applies it to the New Testament church. And he says that God has called us out, out of darkness into his marvelous light. And by the way, when God created the heavens and the earth, he said, let there be light. And what did he do with the light? He divided the light from the darkness. And so it is to be with us. In fact, 1 Peter says, be holy as he is holy. For it is written, it says there, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so the point is, When we become Christians, God is not done with us yet. He saves us. Hallelujah. He forgives us of all of our sins. That's the doctrine of justification. We receive that gift by faith in the Lord Jesus, faith alone in Him. But God begins that process of sanctification, of cleaning up our lives. 
Justification is a one-time act. Sanctification, well, he sets us apart initially, but it begins and it continues until we go to glory. And how does he do it? He does it through his word and in particular through his commandments. And just in case you're sitting there and you're questioning what I'm saying, remember what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. I know to most of you, I don't have to remind you of that verse. You've probably heard it a million times. But it's true. And don't let it ever become ordinary or not special. Because Jesus is teaching us there. If you love me, show your love for me by keeping my commandments. Now, Jesus did give us a new commandment, but in giving us that new commandment to love one another, he did not uh, annul all the moral law that came before. In fact, in Romans 13, verse 10, Paul says that love is the fulfillment of what? The law. Love itself, true biblical love, is the law of in action. And so the context of God's moral law is that it was given within a covenant, a situation, a relationship of the grace of God to his people, of grace and redemption. And I hope as you've seen that this moral law, the Ten Commandments, is binding, I could say especially binding for the Christian today. So let's try to get a little more clarity here and tighten things up a bit. I just want to talk now about the place of the moral law today. And remember, I keep using that phrase, the moral law. I'm talking about the Ten Commandments and our own doctrinal standards. Talk about the moral law in the Westminster Confession, chapter 19, uh, in the shorter catechism, large catechisms. And, and they teach us there that there's more to the moral law, but it is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And so when you see God's moral law, they can fit under one of these commandments, perhaps more than one. Now, historically, when we talk about the place or the role of God's law in the world today, good teachers, good theologians and pastors have made three or I should say acknowledged three uses of God's moral law. Maybe you've heard of that, the uses of the law. Because if we're not careful, and if we misunderstand God's law, it can be deadly. Right? The Pharisees, they, they searched the scriptures, the scribes and Pharisees. I think it's John 5, Jesus says, In them you think you have eternal life, but they are that which, what? Testify of me. And in Matthew 23, he scathes, he, he rebukes and condemns the Pharisees because of their external religion and because they thought they could earn their salvation. And so if we misuse the law of God, we can be like, uh, well, it's like in that 80s movie. The gods must be crazy. Some of you have never heard of that. So, okay, yeah. So there were these pilots flying over Africa. And one of, it's, it's the, the, the premise is crazy too, right? So the pilot's drinking a Coke, Coke Cola out of a Coke bottle. Not a plastic one, an actual bottle. 
he opens the window as he's flying over Africa and chucks the uh, Coke bottle out of his window. And then the scene goes down to the ground where there's this primitive African tribe, you know, running around half naked and no electricity, nothing modern. And uh, I think the bottle hits one of the guys on the head. And they're like, what is this? And so they assume since it fell out of the sky, this Coke bottle came from the gods. And so then they start to mess around with this Coke bottle, and they begin to use it in certain ways, like a hammer, and, uh, and they beat each other over the head with it at certain points, and it can become very dangerous. Well, the law of God did come down. God is not crazy, and His law is not a Coke bottle, but it did come down, and if we misuse it, it can become very dangerous, as, as you can see. So what are the three uses of, those law, of the law of God? The moral law. Well, first of all, there's the, the first use, the pedagogical use. Um, it's a schoolmaster. It leads us to Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 3. Uh, Calvin said that the law of God is like a mirror, the moral law. You know, sometimes perhaps you don't want to look in the mirror. Perhaps you don't want to see how messy your hair is or, I'm getting there, what little hair you have or how old you're looking your imperfections, how you fall short of true beauty. Well, true beauty is love, and part of love is obeying God. And the moral law, it shows us like a mirror, our imperfections and our sin. In fact, it's like that Coke bottle in that movie, because in that movie, <clears throat> they begin to want that Coke bottle. There's only one. It's like the precious. You know, everybody wants it. And they, they covet it, they desire after it, they steal it from one another, and then someone steals it back and he beats another guy over the head with it. Well, the Coke bottle isn't causing the sin, it's, it's in their hearts. The law does not cause sin, it exposes our sin. It's like that spiritual MRI, it shows what's in our heart, that ugliness, that rebellion, that sinfulness that we've had as humans since the fall of Adam. And you know the scriptures, perhaps, there are a few in Romans, Romans 7 and verse 7, Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known about covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. In Romans 3, 20, it says, through the law is the knowledge of sin. So that's why when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus in Matthew 19 and says, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Jesus, first of all, is like, why do you call me good? There's only one good God. Now, Jesus was good. He is good, always has been. But that guy didn't necessarily know that Jesus is the God-man. And so Jesus' point is, man is sinful. Why are you calling any man good? Even though, yeah, I'm the God-man. But then Jesus says, okay, well, you want to have eternal life? Obey the commandments. And so, so Jesus starts to use the law, and then he talks about, well, um, Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And that man walked away very sorrowful because he had many possessions. And so I think Jesus was teaching that man about covetousness. Now, some of the old writers say, well, maybe that was the Apostle Paul. Because later in Romans 7, he talks about covetousness. That's speculation, but perhaps worthy of discussion. The point is Jesus used the law, the Ten Commandments, in evangelism. And so that's why it's important, because if you're going to talk about Jesus and someone's need for Jesus, uh, guess what? They have to 
be aware of their own personal sin. We have, we have the duty, the calling, to talk about that. In order to expose the sinfulness of men, we have to talk about the commandments. And so that should be at the front end of our evangelism, talking about the moral law of God. So that's why Jesus came to rescue us from the penalty of the law. The law only condemns. And so we talk about the first use of the law, the pedagogical use. Second, there is the civil law. It is a restrainer of sin in society. Uh, Again, Calvin, quote him, he called it a bridle. Some talk about it curbing society and society's wickedness. And that's because, as Paul says in Romans 2, verses 12 and 15, the works of the law are written on the hearts of men. We know that there is a God. His creation continually screams His existence, that we owe allegiance to Him. And we know in our heart of hearts that murder is wrong, that stealing is wrong, and not loving God, not loving our neighbor is wrong. And so people um, are not always as bad as they could be. Yes, we are all, when we come into this world, thoroughly and totally depraved. But not all men are as bad as they could be. Now, when God withholds His restraining grace, He lets people go and and go down that spiral of Romans 1, and they do what they want to do, and that's to rebel against God even more. And I think that's what we've seen in our nation. In 1 Timothy 1.9, Paul says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And he talks about murder and all sorts of sins there. So the moral law not only is used to expose sin, it also is used as a restrainer of sin by God. And then third, there is the normative use, and that's really why, that's the main reason why we are going to look at the commandments. Uh, It is a rule of life for the Christian. I hope you've already seen that here with Israel. God does not say, um, if you obey me here, I will forgive you and you will inherit eternal life. God has already redeemed them through the promised one to come. And he says, in light of that, live this way. And so it is with us as Christians. In fact, if you need some more help, in Jeremiah 31 and verse 33, part of the promise of the new covenant for the Christian is that God would take the heart of a Christian out. I should say, of a person out and give a new heart to the Christian. But the new heart which the Lord gives to the Christian On it, he says, is written his law, his commandments. He will put his commands in their minds and write them upon their hearts. And so it becomes the desire of the Christian to obey God. Again, John 14, 15 is where Jesus tells us that. And in 1 John 5, 3, it says this, For this is the love of God. That we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not what? Burdensome. So for the Christian, the commandments of God are not a burden. The commandments of God 
are that which the Christian desires to keep in his life and her life. And even if you look down at Exodus chapter 20 there in verse 6, it says that God shows mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. We show our love to God by keeping his commandments. And so James 2 comes to work here. Uh, Faith without works is dead. If we have true saving faith, then our true saving faith will manifest itself in good works. Good works are determined by God. They're shown to us in his law. And all that is motivated by love for, for God. So in other words, as Christians, we desire to keep the law of God, his commandments, out of thanksgiving for what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, children, maybe throughout the year your parents give you nice gifts. Doesn't that warm your heart? Don't you like it when they give you nice gifts? Motorcycle, a trampoline, years ago maybe a Polly Pocket, whatever. And you just want to, you want to say, thank you, Mom and Dad. And maybe you want to go clean up your room for once. Hey, I want to show you, Mom and Dad, I love you. I'm thankful for what you've given to me. Well, so it is with the child of God. You've given me eternal life. You've forgiven me of all my sins. I can approach you as my Heavenly Father without fear. I can come to your throne of grace. Let me now show you my thanksgiving by doing what you command. And so the Reformers. In our Confession of Faith, in chapter 19, they say this. They talk about this use of the law in the life of the Christian. They say, it's not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but doth sweetly comply with it. And yet, I hope as you've sat there, you've thought this and felt this. You feel it every day, no doubt, as I do. Our larger catechism says that no man is able, either of himself or by any grace received in this life, perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. And so I love, I love that answer to the old children's catechism question, how can you glorify God? How can you glorify God? By loving Him and doing what He commands. And so that's what we're going to try to rediscover, is how we might show our love to God, our love to Jesus, our love to our neighbors, and to be salt and light in this world for Jesus as we go through these Ten Commandments together. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that um, you have worked in our hearts by your spirit. You've given us uh, new hearts, the desire to keep your commandments, to please you. And we thank you, Lord, that you do accept through the blood of Christ our good works, which fall short of your glory. We pray that as we go through these commandments of yours, that we would not become haughty, that we would not become frustrated but that they would not be burdensome, but a joy to us, that we would not trust in them, but because we trust in you and in our Savior, 
we would desire to keep them. We pray in his name. Amen.